For various reasons, both professional and romantic, I've found myself on the King Streetcar almost daily. I live up in the junction in the northwest of the city, and I'm frequently traveling all the way east and south through the downtown core and beyond. Let me just say, I'm a big fan. It gets me where I need to go in the winter. In the summer, as friend and playwright Thomas McKechnie pointed out, it's a safe cycling route rivaling even the bike lanes on Richmond and Adelaide because of its reduced traffic. Thing is, we didn't really need to build it. It took very little money to do. All that was really required was an idea, a big one, and the political will to see it through. Sometimes cities can change and progress, not with some major capital expense, but with a change in mindset. Things like the Beltline Trail repurposing an old railway, private tree protection, green energy grants for homes, or the annual open streets. We say, is this possible? And if the answer is yes, we say, well, why not? I'm making it sound easy. It's not. Not always. Sometimes changing a city's mindset is the hardest thing we can try collectively. But it starts with an idea. This is Spacing Radio. Coming at you from the broom closet at 401 Richmond Street West in Toronto, Ontario, I'm Glenn Bowerman and you're listening to the official podcast of Spacing Magazine. Coming up on the show, we find out about a movement to give Toronto more power over how it's governed. Charter City Toronto's Doug Earle and former Mayor John Sewell will join us. But first, Daniel Raven Ellison is a National Geographic explorer. His big idea, one that's really taking hold in people's mind, is to make London, England a national park city. And we spoke to him after an event that was held by park people. What does that mean and how does it get done? Well, stand by. Daniel, uh, first of all, thank you so much for taking the time to do this for me. It's a pleasure. Uh, so you've got a little tour of, uh, of Toronto. Uh, Toronto takes its park system very seriously, or at least aspirationally. You know, we're, we are the city within the park. Uh, we have signs that say so. Uh, do you have any initial impressions? And you, you can, don't worry about sparing our feelings. Well, actually, one of the reasons why I wanted to come to Toronto was because, I mean, I don't know how much people realize it here, um, but you guys have just got a brilliant reputation for being, I think, progressive and innovative and doing really cool sort of activations as part of festivals. And um, there's an agglomeration of cool charities, whether it's 880 Cities or um, different organisations doing really innovative work in the city. So, um, yeah, I was just really excited to come here and, and going for a tour around uh, 
Toronto, went up to Rouge Urban National Park, got a great view across the city. Um, we'd love to see that in the summertime as well. I mean, it's a really innovative space in its own right in terms of this idea of an urban national park right beside the city, you know, that people can access. Um, but, you know, the ravines are pretty cool, aren't they? Like, yeah. Really cool. So, yeah, no, loving it so far, really enjoying it. It seems like the, the sort of theme that goes through a lot of your work is just challenging people to look at what they already have in a different way than they're used to. Um, you know, you, you were a geography teacher at one point. I imagine you've looked at a lot of maps and taught students how to look at maps. But mm -hmm. uh, it seems like you're writing, you're kind of writing new maps with, with your work. I, I, I don't think the, the, the way that many of us see the world at the moment is necessarily satisfactory. Mm -hmm. And I like just to highlight that. So um, um, I'm a guerrilla geographer. That's how I like to think of myself. Yeah. Guerrilla geography is radical, alternative, creative, alternative geographies. And a large amount of that is about thinking about interventions, which, which puts things into a new light, which encourage, encourages people to see things differently. So as an example of that, um, I recently made a film called The UK in 100 Seconds. Mm -hmm. And essentially what I'd noticed was that even though I'd traveled the UK extensively and I'm a geographer, I came to realize that I had no idea what the country looks like because <laughs> okay. essentially it's so big, how can my brain even vaguely cope? And when I look at a satellite image or a map, um, the images are too small and too complicated again for my brain to make sense of. I mean, right. many of us even suffer from you know, body dysmorphia or you know, we find it hard enough to get a sense of what we look like ourselves, let alone whole nations. So I ran a YouGov poll with uh, Friends of the Earth, and we found that um, that uh, one in three people in the UK think that um, half the country is built on, half the United Kingdom is built on. And if that many people think that half the country is built on, um, then maybe it would be understandable why people may then also think there'd be no space for more wildlife or no space for affordable housing or no space for refugees or migrants. Right. The reality is that only about 5% of the country is built on. Mm -hmm. You know, the vast majority of the UK is not built on. So I made a short film um, that's 100 seconds long, and every second of the film is one uh, metre of a walk that I took mm -hmm. that I filmed uh, with a drone from above to make a 100-second film where every one second of the film and one metre of the walk is 1% of what the country looks like from the air. Right. And what it reveals is that, you know, uh, uh, the largest share of land is given over to cows and sheep, over 28% of the country. Mm -hmm. Then the next larger share, 27%, is for crops, but half those crops are fed to cows and sheep. So we're using about 40% of the UK, basically for animal-related agriculture, mm -hmm. at a time when one in 10 species uh, is at risk of extinction in the UK, one in five mammals is at risk of extinction. We have a housing crisis where people can't afford um, um, housing. And, and, and yet people have just such a massive misunderstanding of what the country looks like. Mm -hmm. So. I made the film as a way to try and redress that issue. And actually, I hope that ultimately some people will see the film and think, well, maybe we can create more space for wildlife. Maybe I'll eat a little bit differently. Right. Maybe we can build some more affordable houses. Maybe we can have some more refugees in the country because maybe we shouldn't Brexit and mm -hmm. leave the European Union, you know, because these, these things are all connected. Right. Another big project right now is, uh, is trying to think about London, you know, the city, as a national park. Uh, which I think, uh, you know... There's having, no trying about it. Yeah, it's, you're going to do it? Yeah, we'll just do it, why not? Uh, I heard this year. Right, this but, July. Yeah. Right. Uh, so what does that entail? I mean, in, I think, it be, I, th I believe I read that it sort of started with a thought experiment, um, which even you even challenged yourself, and then you kind of uh, convinced yourself, and then you had the task of convincing other people. Yeah, and I think the, 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 the whole thing has been about 
giving myself and other people little epiphanies about why this thing makes so much sense. I mean, we desperately need a better relationship with nature for our own health and well-being, for the health and well-being of wildlife, and for the health and well-being, the resilience of the city itself, the urban fabric itself, especially in the face of climate change. Mm-hmm. And when you look at the family of national parks around the world, there are national parks that are deserts, like Death Valley in the United States. There's rainforests, like Virunga. There's... Uh, 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 big grasslands like Kruger National Park and we're familiar with these different environments or you know the mountains and snow up in sort of Banff Um, and when you look at those national parks around the world every major type of recognized landscape and habitat is is in that family right apart from a major urban area right and you know it's my view that the urban life isn't worth less than rural life an urban red fox isn't worth less than an arctic fox or a fennec fox, an urban peregrine falcon isn't worth less than a rural peregrine falcon. That is animals that are doing well in the city and, you know, good on them. Um, And, you know, at the same time, people that inhabit the city, we're animals too. Mm -hmm. And we expect outstanding habitats for orangutans. Well, we deserve outstanding habitats too. that live alongside these other species. And and finally, there's this, this, this almost Victorian idea that nature conservation is done by some expert person in some distant land. Yeah, and that somehow people in cities and uh, are, are worth less, and that 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 life in cities we want we should stand for the idea that it's 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 worth less somehow. Um, but the reality is that the vast majority of people in the world live in towns and cities, yeah. and it's these people who have the most power. And you know, for many people, when they visit a rural national park, they will be a consumer of that environment. They'll contribute some soil erosion. They'll contribute some taxes. They probably won't volunteer. Whereas in an urban environment, there are billions of people around the world who have the potential not just to protect life, but to create life. You know, on their balconies, on their rooftops, in their gardens. And I find that idea really inspiring. So if if we're not prejudiced against urban culture, urban people, urban life, then I think there's no reason why we shouldn't reimagine entire cities, all of entire conurbations as national park cities. Right. Urban environments are, you know, ecosystems. And you mentioned the Red Fox in London, which was, as a visitor there, I was kind of startled at first to see and then, you know, was quite enamored with them. We're very proud of our raccoons here. I think also with climate change, uh, you know, urban ecosystems are actually becoming more diverse as, you know, certain species are being pushed out of their traditional sort of habitats and, and finding some way to make it in a big city like London or Toronto or yeah, and, New York. And it's not just about wildlife, though, you know. So, you know, um, for me, the idea of the, the, the National Park City, the London National Park City, it's about the health and well-being of people as well. Mm-hmm. And a large amount of that is about recreation and access. And actually... I mean, I love national parks. That's why I'm inspired by this idea. But actually, more people are engaged in running and cycling and kayaking in cities than than, um, rural locations. And that's not just because there's more people in those places. It's because cities are so accessible. They're both porous in their nature, but also you have great public transport for getting around. So we need to take these opportunities to people where they are, rather than thinking that people should always go out to some distant place to enjoy them. But, you know, in the UK... Um, part of the reason why the first national park in the UK was founded, the Peak District National Park, was, was not really because of wildlife. It was because some, some wealthy aristocrats were trying to stop some working-class people from accessing their land right. um, at a famous place called Kinder Scout. So what happened was, was there was a mass trespass, and 
people said, no, you can't stop us from walking where we've walked for hundreds of years. And then they secured access to Kinder Scout and the first national park was formed. And not far from where that intervention took place is a place called Stanage Edge with some of the best rock climbing in the country. Mm-hmm. Now, again, if we're not going to be prejudiced against urban activity, I think of skateboarders and I think of free running. And free runners for me... Um, embody both those two things that happen in the Peak District National Park. You know, they embody that spirit and importance of people asserting their right to the city mm. by testing corporations, by testing government, by testing people in terms of how playful uh, you can be and expressive you can be in the city. But but also they embody the, the skills and prowess um, and excitement of the rock climbers. Right. Um, so if you just start to look at free running and skateboarding and some of these activities in the cities and not be prejudiced against them and see them as just as important as maybe some of those recreational activities you might expect to see, you know, up in the mountains, then you begin to see that maybe, you know, the National Park City as an idea makes sense Mm -hmm. for for people and wildlife. What I really like about this project is that, you know, a, a lot of park advocates, their main thing is to find new green spaces or to expand the existing ones. And that's all well and good. But this just kind of challenges you to you know, maybe redefine a park and, and maybe appreciate to really take stock of all the assets that a city might have. Yeah. And you think about Toronto. I mean, I'll just throw the question out there. You know, what if Toronto was a national park city? Mm-hmm. And how might that um, change people's thoughts about what the city is for and what life means in the city? And for a three or four year old growing up in that city, how might that change their attitudes and thoughts and ideas and their imaginations of what may be possible? And then the policies that they introduce when they become adults or the constituency they might make up, which then starts voting for alternative or you know, other ideas. Right. And also, if you're a business leader, you know, you're currently thinking about Toronto maybe as a, a cultural, financial or political centre. But what if you start thinking of it as an ecological centre and how right. might that reshape you know, your imagination as well? So I think this, one of the most powerful things about the idea is the way that it reframes the city, but in a scalable way that means that a four-year-old can get involved, as can a city leader. Right. Um, and for me, there are two questions that really underpin that. You know, the first one is that question of what if. Mm-hmm. What if Toronto is a national park city, but then further still... What if there are more possums? What if there's more stand-up paddleboarding? What if there's more outdoor learning in schools? What if every park was um, connected to another park through a green corridor? And there's a certain point when you then start to create a constituency of people that ask a follow-up question, which is more of a, a why not? Mm-hmm. And I say that with, a, with an interro bang on the end. It's more of an assertion rather than a question. And, uh, you know, I think with great success, from by all accounts, you, you got community stakeholders involved. You got, you know, the mayor uh, local councillors. Uh, so it, it's really taken off, and this is the year? This is the year. So we're launching in July. There's going to be a big festival in London um, starting on the 20th of July. And, you know, it, it's just the beginning of a journey. It's going one project at a time, trying mm-hmm. to inspire as many people as possible. Um, rather than having one big opening ceremony, we're inviting any Londoner to have a, a mini opening ceremony. Um, so we will have a fairly good sort of central launch somewhere, but but the idea is if you're four, if you want to open up a flower pot with some just grateful worms, then, you know, go for that. Mm-hmm. And if you're doing a walk for a group of 80-year-olds um, and that you want that to be part of a celebratory launch, then, then that's good too. Um, but we're just trying to really uh, nurture the spirit that, that everyone can contribute, everyone can benefit, 
And sometimes that contribution isn't necessarily about volunteering for others or giving lots of money. Sometimes just giving yourself some time to be more well yourself and to be happier yourself actually is making a big contribution as well. Well, Daniel, I wish you great success and uh, enjoy the rest of your stay. Thank you. Now, most of you will recall this summer when Ontario Premier Doug Ford decided to slash the number of Toronto City Council seats in the middle of a municipal election. People in the city were outraged, but there was ultimately nothing anyone could do. That's because constitutionally, cities don't have any recognized authority over themselves. They are so-called creatures of the province, and the provincial government can do with them whatever they like, or even dissolve them entirely. Partially in response to this, there is a growing movement called Charter City Toronto, which hopes to win the city of Toronto some constitutionally recognized power over itself. Former journalist and Charter City Steering Committee member Doug Earle sat down with us. And I do apologize for the extremely audible radiator. Guerrilla broadcasting is hard. So, Doug, thank you for joining me. Pleasure to be here. Uh, we had a bit of a crisis here in this city, uh, right in the middle of uh, a municipal election. And uh, I think a lot of people were surprised at the powers that uh, the province has over the municipality. Uh, because I think a lot of the laws governing what can or should be done uh, with the city as a creature of the province was is mostly written uh, assuming good faith from all parties. Uh, we found out as a municipality that that is not something that can be counted on. And so now we are talking about how to become more autonomous as a city. And so we're talking about a city charter. Can you, can you explain what that might mean? For us, a city charter <coughs> is a vehicle um, to achieve a new relationship between the city of Toronto and the province of Ontario, in a nutshell. Um, I think there's no um, one, in, well, it's not hard to find people in the city of Toronto who think that the relationship between the city and the province uh, needs some serious work. There are a lot of people who think it's an abusive relationship at the moment. And you're right, you know, so much of the rules that go into governing, whether it's the city of Toronto or frankly, whether it's the Congress of the United States, are founded on the idea that people are going to behave responsibly, that they're going to take their uh, role in government seriously, that they're going to consult with people before they act and so on and so forth. But we can see that when that breaks down, we have no backup. If someone is determined to use the system to get something they want that is not in the best interests of the city, there's virtually nothing that can stop them if they're a premier with a majority government. So what we are saying is there has to be a different arrangement. Uh, we can't be at the mercy of the whims of provincial governments that come and go. Sooner or later, Toronto has to have a status that is innate to itself, just as the federal and provincial governments have powers and jurisdictions that are unique to them, the city of Toronto needs that too, so it can be a more co-equal um, level of government in the country. And that's, in a nutshell, what we're proposing. The general proposition from your group seems to be uh, that we reopen the charter, or, or at least take a look at the charter, specifically the parts that pertain to uh, Ontario municipalities and more specifically than that Toronto so that it's not a free-for-all that we're re-examining the entire <laughs> you know constitution of Canada uh, which would be a hassle to say the least uh, but uh, you know a, a very specific ask uh, 
And and so what would that require that that you've researched so, so we, far? So we see it as a two-step process, but that the two steps would go forward in tandem at the same time. So on one level, um, we would need to write a city charter. Okay, so this is the exercise where everybody gets to say, what kind of city do you want? How do you want your city to be governed? Are there things that the city is already doing that it's capable of doing but which fall under provincial control that we could simply take? Are there elements of other things um, uh, that are properly provincial uh, jurisdiction that we could take over and take over the funding for that? It's, it's a big bucket that uh, we can pour in, you know, the, not just the aspirations of Torontonians but also consider the mechanics of how everything is going to work in the city of Toronto. Well, okay, so what do you end up with at the end of that process? You get a piece of provincial legislation similar to the City of Toronto Act, which outlines, is basically a constitution for the City of Toronto. Mm -hmm. But the difficulty, we have that now, yeah. but the difficulty, of course, it is that it's a piece of provincial legislation, they can repeal it, change it, whatever they want to do, and the city has absolutely no say. So in order to protect the city, the second track of our proposal is to bring about a constitutional amendment Single province constitutional amendment, so it you know uh, would only affect the province of Ontario, um, and uh, to pass what would essentially be enabling legislation, very short that would simply say this is a city charter, this is how you get one, and this is how you amend one, and so a city charter is any city that has negotiated a 21st century deal with the province for more powers or whatever the arrangement is, great. Okay, and then uh, how do you get a, a, a city charter? The um, city and the provincial government negotiate it and it gets passed into uh, provincial legislation. How do you then um, amend or protect that city charter? You put in the Constitution a clause that simply says that the city charter cannot be changed without the agreement of the city. Right. So now instead of the dynamic you have where the province can put its big finger on us and say what we say goes, you have a partnership and you have two people across a negotiating table and if you want to move forward you have to agree. And further protection would be that because this arrangement is enshrined in the constitution, not the charter itself, but just how you make one, mm -hmm. if a provincial government simply wanted to change those rules... It couldn't because to change the constitution with a single province amendment requires the consent of the federal government. So you're putting in place some checks and balances around, you know, what a city can do, what a city is um, that would protect the city and enable it to be much more the master of its own house, to coin a phrase. Right. Uh, some stumbling blocks that I can see uh, looking forward, uh, at least in, in the immediate future, is that we, we currently have a provincial government and a premier in Doug Ford that uh, I think uh, enjoys a sort of unilateral power over the city of Toronto. Um, he has expressed the, uh, the will and the ability to, um, to wield that power. Uh, you know, not just a promise, almost a threat. Uh, so this this wouldn't happen under his tenure if, if you need the province on board. Well, I, I tend to agree with your analysis, but you never know, you know. I mean, it, when, when you look at what Doug Ford has done, if you put the most positive kind of spin on what he's done, you can see that in his mind, he's sort of trying to modernize a little bit. You know, the, the idea of taking over the subway, for an example, clearly 
there is a governance problem around transit mm -hmm. in the GTA. We have disparate transit agencies that all work independently. We can't coordinate fares. We can't coordinate schedules. So his solution is to take over the Toronto subway. Right. Now, how that achieves anything, I don't know, but I'm hoping that the kernel of the logic behind it is seeing that we need a new arrangement because the one that we have isn't working. Right. So, and that seems to power a lot of what he, he wants to do, a lot of really radical change. So my feeling is if we could get his ear and if we could convince him that our way would help him to achieve some of what he's doing, you never know. You know, politics makes strange bedfellows. But I think the more likely uh, outcome is that he's not going to be interested in what we're saying. We're a bunch of downtown latte-sipping uh, lefties. We don't have any credibility in his government. We are not, uh, you know, a part of the province that he cares very deeply about except to attack. So more likely is that we're going to have to wait for a change of government in the province of Ontario. And so our task is to start right now working with the other parties who, <coughs> in the case of the NDP, would like to take power, in the case of the Liberals, would like to become a party in the legislature again, they're going to have to do that partly through the City of Toronto. So maybe we have some leverage at this point to get our ideas onto the political platforms of some of the provincial parties. On the flip side, and to talk about a different Ford, uh, that would be Doug's brother, the former mayor, Rob Ford, there was a time not too long ago in this city where we were almost begging senior levels of government to step in. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, not just to take it a swipe at the former mayor, but uh, uh, as well, I'm thinking with things like, uh, you know, intensification targets that are outlined by the province or, uh, you know, uh, a, a level of care for social housing or, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, these standards that are set by other uh, senior levels of government. If Toronto had this more greater autonomy, uh, can we be trusted with that power? Well, um, yes. Uh, why not? I mean, um, you know, there are always going to be political disagreements. Um, there's a political spectrum out there and people populate it from one end to the other. Um, the point is not to create a system that, you know, produces a predetermined outcome that's somehow progressive or left or, 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 or anything like that. You know, the, the idea is to create uh, a more uh, equal uh, playing field between all of the various players, the city, the province, and the uh, and the feds, and to create a decision-making matrix that takes these kinds of things into account. So more autonomy for the city of Toronto, but more oversight from within. You know, nobody says, well, how can the province be trusted to, to build roads? Right. We should have the federal government telling them what to do. Well, that would be ridiculous and a non-starter. Yet we have a situation where somehow the city of Toronto can't be trusted to change the speed limits on neighborhood streets. Right. Right. We can't change traffic lights or even, you know, the timing of traffic lights without going to the province and getting permission. And these are just a couple of small examples. But, you know, right across the entire spectrum of what the city does, there is so much second guessing by the province and us having to, um, you know, fulfill um, regulations and restrictions that are laid down by the province. The people that laid those down are no different from the people who live in the city of Toronto. Half the government of Ontario is run by people who live in the city of Toronto. You know, if we decided tomorrow that we were going to take over the entire housing file, let's just say, 
from the federal and the provincial governments. We're going to run it. We're going to plan it. We're going to determine the units we need. We're going to build the units we need. Okay, so then what do we need from the province? Maybe we need the, the ability to borrow more money. Mm. What do we need from the feds? Maybe we need, you know, a guaranteed long-term um, cost-sharing funding commitment from the federal government. That's hard if you're going to the federal government to say, we want to make all the decisions, but we want you to give us the money. But the reality is that the decisions are always best if they're made closest to the people affected. And the other reality is that the uh, country of Canada has a responsibility to provide housing for the immigrants that it is bringing into the country. And it has a responsibility to provide housing so that there is a social safety net for people who need it in the country. So we both have the same goal. Right. Um, why can't we work together and create a, a situation that works for both of us? All three of us. So what's, uh, what are the next steps for, for this group? Well, uh, we're going to really deeply consider uh, what we heard last night. We are uh, actively recruiting for people to join us on our group. So far, we're seven or eight people. Um, last night was our first public foray. We're looking to expand our group to maybe 20 people or so. We're looking for um, particular expertise, people around fundraising, um, people with um, expertise in government um, and uh, in communications and social media because we have to put those building blocks in place. Over the summer, we're going to do more consultations and we're going to take the results of those consultations around a table and come up with a proposal for a charter. But the, 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 the game that we're playing, the bottom line that we want people to think about, the starting point, what if there was no province? Mm-hmm. What then? How would things be organized? Would we be able to do it? Um, and if so, how? I'm not saying that there shouldn't be a province, but I think you have to start there as opposed to starting where we are, where the province has all the power and, the, and, and Toronto has none. Flip the equation, see what you'd come up with, and then see what you can apply to our situation. And so if people want to reach out, uh, how can they reach you? They can go to our website, which is chartercitytoronto.ca. Um, they can get a hold of us by email, chartercitytoronto at gmail.com. We also have a Facebook page uh, and so forth, so there's plenty of ways to get a hold of us. And they can sign up on our webpage for the updates that we put out every couple of weeks. Okay, well, Doug, I want to thank you so much for taking the time, and we'll be watching. Thanks for your interest. Finally, former Mayor John Sewell has been a key figure in a number of fights throughout the years. He's also joined the Charter City movement, and I asked him about the big ideas, past and present, that have inspired people. Well, I think the biggest idea we had was that uh, the function of the city government was to involve people as as much as we could in decision-making in various kinds of ways, And, and we... We had a council, I think, that tried to figure out how to do that. Uh, it, was, it was based on the notion that um, we as politicians didn't have all the answers, uh, that in fact we probably didn't have very many answers, but if we consulted with enough people in a, in a very authentic kind of fashion, that we'd get really better answers or good answers. So 
we, we created a whole number of uh, ways in which we actually engaged people. And I think that was probably the biggest idea of, of what we were doing in the 1970s. Um, what it meant was that if you engaged a lot of people, it immediately led to the whole question of social justice mm-hmm. and, and how do you create some equity in society. So we had a, a very massive affordable housing program as an example. Um, We had programs that uh, really managed to um, bring most of the kids in the city into recreation uh, programs. Um, So, I mean, it's interesting how one thing flows from another. The big idea was we don't have all the answers. We've got to consult with people. And if we consult with people, then you all of a sudden start getting into other ideas such as social equity. Right, and uh, at the time that was a very different, much smaller Toronto with a, you know, a, a local government and then a, the the metro government. On, That's on top correct. Of that. the, ter- the population of Toronto, the city of Toronto at that point was seven hundred thousand, um, but we were part of the Metropolitan Council as well, which was including Scarborough, North York, Etobicoke, East York, and, and York. Um, so we had a population of about two million. Um, so we had some influence on the, the policies of, uh, of Metro Toronto. Not as much as we wanted to have, uh, because Toronto was the really, really progressive centre. Um, and w- we had a hard time getting our ideas out into the other areas. I mean, as an example, um, you know, we had this very powerful affordable housing program that we'd started in 1973, not one of the other five municipalities in Metro had an affordable housing program. They just didn't. It was very popular in Toronto. Just, um, or to give another example, um, we decided that as a council, this is in 74, 75, that we should allow group homes to locate anywhere in the city. Mm -hmm. As of right, as long as they weren't within 100 metres of another home, they could do it as of right. And so we passed that bylaw, and we had a lot of public consultations. There wasn't a single objection filed, so there was no Ontario Municipal Board hearing on that bylaw to, to actually allow it. I mean, a very, very progressive move. Whereas out in the suburbs, there was a big fight. Can't have group homes here, and blah, 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 blah. You know, so right. so the, the, there were some major differences there. But we did manage to participate in Metro, so we, there was an influence here and there. And now, uh, the big idea that we're here to talk about is the idea of uh, making Toronto a charter city. And uh, that's an idea that's been around for a while, and especially post-amalgamation, where we got rid of the Metro Council and we amalgamated all the boroughs. Uh, So can you tell me a little bit about uh, your involvement in in this process? The basic idea, I think, behind a a charter city is, is twofold. One you want to make sure that the city has more power to address the issues that people expect it to address right? Um, in all kinds of ways. And the second thing is that you want to have a city where it has real powers and the province can't all of a sudden grab them away from you, take mm-hmm. them away. Um, so, I mean, just as an example of the second thing, they created the megacity in 1998. Yeah. 
uh, and that was just a total right out of the blue, bingo, we're going to do it. We had no protection. We went to court. We tried to stop, you know, the, we had the big referendum, 76% of the people voted against the mega city. We went to court. The court said, it's mega chutzpah, but they can do it. Mm -hmm. um, so we want to prevent that kind of a thing happening. But the other thing is, we want to make sure Toronto has the powers to be a real city. So. At the moment, as an example, if we want to put up a, a red light camera at an intersection, we have to get the province of, to approve it. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it. You think this is craziness? So, and and you know, maybe what we need is we need enough money that we can actually fund some of the programs we're trying to run. I mean, transit would be one example, right. um, or affordable housing would be another, or daycare. I mean, there's a lot of them. Right. Uh, we don't have the revenue tools to, to do it. Well, we have some revenue tools, and I agree that City Council is now not using all of the tools at its disposal. Right. The but nevertheless, we'd like to, to try and undo that. So they're the two parts, I think, to the mega city, trying to keep the province out of affairs that are normally ours and secondly making sure the city has the power to do the kinds of things people expect of it. Obviously this is in, at least in part in response to Doug Ford's provincial government his slashing of the number of seats on city council and as well as the uh, the proposed upload of the subway system which That's you right. yourself wrote an editorial in the Globe right. and Mail about. Yeah. Uh, you know how much of this is, is rea a reaction to Doug Ford himself? Well um I mean, there's no question when you look at how political issues get onto the agenda, it's because people do something and people say, wait a minute, i got to stop that. So I think the immediate reaction is to, 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 to what Doug Ford is doing, that, you know, hey, we've got to get some protection for it. But the point is, this is an idea that's been around for a while. Mm -hmm. People have struggled with it. I mean, I was one of the authors of a book that was written about it about 15 years ago. Right. Um, so it's not as though this is a new idea, but it's got, you know, um, uh, sort of, it, 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 it's, it's come onto the agenda now because of the things that Ford has done. Right. No question about that. And as you say, this isn't a new idea, but it's likely to be a long-term goal, uh, you know, not, not oh, something yeah. that will happen. Th this ain't going to happen overnight. I mean, we, we've got to be clear about that. And, and that's for a number of reasons. The biggest reason is that, first of all, we have to create a clear proposal. Mm. What do we mean by a charter city? What are the details of it? Um, and so we've got to start to spell them out. And that's not easy. Um, you know, we've started the discussion on that, but it's very, very complicated. But then once we do that, we've got to get buy-in from an awful lot of people in the city. Mm -hmm. We have to make sure that people in the city actually think this is a good idea. Um, and that's going to be a tough and hard fight uh, because a lot of people don't have much use for city council. I mean, there's reasons not to like city council. I guess the, the biggest reason is that it does all of its business in public. It's required by law to do that, unlike the federal provincial government where they have cabinet meetings where you're sworn to secrecy. You can't find out what happened. Mm -hmm. in, in Toronto, you find out everything that happens. Well, guess what? Not everything is good <laughs> There's a, because we're human beings and we, you, know, you make decisions because you have to make decisions. Some of them aren't very good. So the reputation of a city council is not always as, as high as it might be. I mean, I, I, you know, I'm prejudiced on this, but I think in the 70s, 
the city council had a very, very good reputation in regard to the citizens, and I'm not sure that's the case now. I mean, I could talk about why that is, but that's gonna be a big problem, trying to convince people that Toronto should actually have more powers mm -hmm. um, and that it should have protection from the provincial government. We've got, we're gonna have to really, really work on that. Once we do those two things, make the specific proposal, discuss it widely among the citizens, then we're going to have to get the provincial government to agree to it. Right. So, and the federal government. And the federal government as well. Yeah. That's correct. I mean, what's interesting is that um, the Liberal Party, both of Ontario and Canada, and the New Democratic Party of Ontario and Canada, both, in fact, are uh, sort of geared towards city issues. They mm -hmm. get a lot of votes in cities. That's where people get elect them. So they are probably fairly sympathetic to the idea of a charter city. But of course, it's the old devil in the details. You know, what do you mean by charter city? Right. So we're going to have to work out all that stuff. It's just a long-term project. So what's your message to Torontonians to, uh, you know, try and take more ownership of their own city, maybe, you know, on, on the level of pride and, and on the level of, you know, the day-to-day -day business of the, the actual workings yeah, of the city? Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure we're going to take much... Uh, uh, ownership in terms of pride. It's not a Canadian or Toronto thing to do. Sure. Uh, but in fact, ownership of the issues about Toronto and how it works, that's what we have to convince people. And, and I think we probably can. I th I, that's my, my great hope that people say, yeah, yeah. I mean, let's face it, we, we're a city that's working really, really well. I'm not sure City Hall works very well. But all other parts of the city, you know, you, you look at the financial center, <laughs> you know, or the cultural life, wow, you know, mm -hmm. our education system hasn't been wrecked yet. I, you know, we're, we have a lot of good things going for us. And I, 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 mean, I wish City Hall was up to speed and that it, you know, we could say that it was one of the really, really good things about Toronto. It's not at the moment. I think a lot of that has to do with the mega city. Um, but that's going to be a stumbling block, I think, for us, and we're going to have to figure out how to get over it. I mean, I find it fascinating that while you, you and I are talking about the Charter City and a lot of other citizens are, it's not being talked about in the committee that's been set up to look at the structure of Toronto. Right, the governance. Those guys just don't care about it. Right. I, it's quite extraordinary. <laughs> Quorum. This meeting is now resumed. Members, before the recess, council was debating the mayor's key item, which is EX 3.1 on engagement with the province on Toronto's transit system. We will return to that item after release of member hold. I tuned into the live stream of city council today. It's actually been a while since I watched a council meeting. I don't think I've watched since the number of seats were slashed. I think I let myself get a little cynical since the election. Doug Ford's interference and the near impossibility of unseating an incumbent basically meant that the status quo was preserved. What could possibly happen in those chambers that would really inspire people? And to get them moving. And make no mistake, around the world, when a state takes over a transit system and says, hey city, you operate it, Riders don't connect the dots. They get up in the morning, that ride fails them, 
and it will be all our fault, even though we do not truly have the financial control to keep that system in a state of good repair. But I tuned in to hear the debate about how to respond to Doug's plan to seize the Toronto subway system, which he can unilaterally do because cities, again, have no charter rights. See, Doug's full of big ideas. Disastrous, undemocratic, city-smashing ideas. And it really wouldn't take much to make them a reality. Council ultimately reaffirmed that, no, thank you, Doug, we would really like to maintain control of our own subway. And the Doug Ford government for the people may just go ahead and ignore the people of Toronto, as it did last summer. But the thing is, it's important to stand up and be counted, even if you lose. Even if you have no real hope of winning in the first place, you still have the right, maybe the moral obligation, to stand up for yourself and for your city. That's how democracy works, or at least, that's a big idea. And that's the show. Thanks so much for listening. If you like this episode, please tell all the other former mayors of Toronto, and maybe the current one too. Also, a rating or subscription on iTunes will help us reach new listeners. I make this podcast with Neil Hinchley, who composes our music, and you can find his music on SoundCloud at Track82. That's all spelled out. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or scoops, you can tweet at us at Spacing Radio, that's all one word, or you can email me at glimbowerman at spacing.ca. That's G-L-Y-N-B-O-W-E-R-M-A-N at spacing.ca. Visit our website at spacing.ca or visit our city store at 401 Richmond Street West in Toronto. In the meantime, get someone to look at that radiator. Cheers. Cheers.